Well, it's November, and so uh, here in America, that means it's Thanksgiving month, and so some of you who have kids at home, you may at some point find yourselves uh, reading the story or having conversations about those uh, first pilgrims, right? And if you do, you're, you're struck afresh, aren't you? I know I am, each time you hear it, about uh, the incredible sacrifice and, and really a story that uh, from the outset looks terribly pathetic and uh, almost uh, fully a failure, right? I, d- I can't quote you the numbers off the top of my head. I should have looked at them. But, you know, however many came over to begin with, you know, a few hundred, how many died on the way before they ever set foot on soil here in this continent? And then within those first few weeks and months, and then over that first winter, how many died and never made it? And yet, from such small beginnings become a nation that we take for granted, that we see as one that God has used, not that our nation is God's nation like Israel was, no, but one that God has used, one that we have good reason to be very grateful for, and yet from such small beginnings. We come to a passage this morning that maybe at first glance we might not think in those terms, but my contention and encouragement for you this morning is it is a passage much about the same thing. Very, very small beginnings, a tiny little trickle of water that will join with many others as rivers to come a great ocean, which we today stand in the stream of. Exodus chapter 18, join with me as we jump in the nation of Israel after the Lord mightily leads them out of Egypt. After they, for a short period of time, a couple of months, wander in the wilderness, now have come to Mount Sinai. By the way, a chronological note, um, most scholars would contend that Exodus 18 probably takes place after Exodus 19. You can debate that over lunch, or if you really want, I can give you my reasons. I do think that's the best take. But I think it's specifically put here because the writer is intending to bring to a conclusion what's come up to this point, and I think we'll find that conclusion that climax really poignant for us this morning. Exodus 18, let's read. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel as people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom. For Moses said, I have been a sojourner or stranger in a foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law 
before God. Pause there. First this morning, I'd like you to notice, as I think the first audience would have read this, as Moses intends it, not just what is happening here, but what it means. Here's the first piece, I think, of what it means. Notice that Yahweh's plan is being fulfilled. The first thing we have is that Yahweh's plan is being fulfilled. We have the record of a Midianite who hears of the mighty works of Yahweh. Now, this particular Midianite is a dude we kind of know. His name is Jethro, or Ruel, as he was introduced to us originally in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. He is the family and the household where Moses, when he flees from Egypt, from Pharaoh's sword, because he fears he'll be killed for having committed murder, having killed an Egyptian, he finds a home there in the house of Ruel, ends up marrying one of his daughters, Zipporah. This we know as we've gone through Exodus thus far. And so Jethro, this same man here, this Midianite, we've met. And what we see in the opening portion, he's introduced sort of out of the blue in verse 1. And what is he doing? Look again. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard. That's what he's doing. And that's the point. A Midianite, a non-Israelite, not an Egyptian either, but somebody else from somewhere else on the face of the earth has heard of all that God has done. There it is. Verse 1, all that God had done for Moses and for Israel as people, and now the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So I don't know. We don't know exactly how he heard, but likely through traveling caravans in that day over the course of those weeks and months when God was doing miracles in Egypt, word traveled and traveled to Midian. And so he knows some people who are there in Egypt. And so he's concerned for their welfare and probably takes great interest in the stories of what's going on. What you need to understand is in the context of the book of Exodus, what the writer has, has repeatedly pointed us to is the fact of God's plan in the Exodus itself and the very way he went about it. I think we've mentioned this on a number of occasions. We've, we've seen this before in Exodus. I know I've mentioned it. I know several of the other gentlemen who have walked us through have mention it too, but I want you to see this again because it comes to a, a mini climax in our passage today. God could have just snapped his fingers and done, I don't know, anything he wanted. He could have had all the Egyptians fall asleep while the Israelites left, right? He could have, I don't know, invented airplanes and flown them all out. I mean, he could have just done, he could have made whales ride through the sand. And, I mean, right? You get my point. He could have done it any way he wanted, but he chose this way. And he chose this way with all these miracles, with all the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, with all the expressions of his glory and power for a purpose. Why don't you go ahead and look with me, if you will, flip back to chapter 6. And we're going to just quickly look at a few of these places. Chapter 6, and I'm going to just pick up in verse 6. And this is the Lord speaking to Moses and the Israelites. Exodus 6, 6. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you from my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Why is God going to do it? Why is he going to do it with great judgments and with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand? Why that way? So that the Israelites would know once and for all that Yahweh is God on the face of the earth and over all creation. Flip to chapter 7 now. Jump down with me to verse 3. 
7.3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Again, we're, under, we're reading here the purpose statement. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I can do more miracles. Why, God? Verse 4, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Why, Yahweh? Why, Lord? Verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 6, I'm going to do it this way so that you and the generations after you, Moses, all the Israelites will know forever that I am the Lord. I'm also going to do it so that the Egyptians themselves and Pharaoh himself will know that I alone am God. I am Lord. Flip to chapter 9. Chapter 9, we'll just pick up. Every one of these is midstream, but for the sake of time, chapter 9, verse 15 Here is God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, and he's telling Pharaoh, look, I I could have snapped my fingers and been done with you, but I didn't, and here's why. For if by now, 9.15, I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have then been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Chapter 6 so that the Israelites would know. Chapter 7, so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know. Chapter 9, so that all on the face of the earth would know that there is a God in heaven. They would know the name of Yahweh, the one true God. Why Exodus? Why is it even here? Why did it happen this way? So that God could make known his name. And so your subtitle for every sermon has been Exodus, they shall know I am the Lord, because that's the theme Now do you see the context into which we come when we get to chapter 18? All of the the ten ten wonders we call plagues have, have taken place. God has stretched out his mighty hand, and he's he's spread the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry land, and he brought it crashing back to destroy the, the, the army of Pharaoh. Why all of these things? So that they may know. So isn't this a fitting place? And I think the author actually wrote this out of chronological order for this purpose to climax. Guess who comes? Right before we get to Sinai, because we're going to jump into the law, and and, and a whole bunch of other stuff is going to shoot off from there. But the author, led by the Spirit, would have us know, just like I said I was going to do, my name will be proclaimed to all the nations. And so... Here comes a Midianite, and what does he do? Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, and back in chapter 18, he heard. He heard about all that God has done. Now, Jethro's going to come, and he's going to deliver Moses' family back to him. At some point, apparently, Moses sent Zipporah and the two sons back to Midian. We don't know when. It's not recorded, and we don't find out anywhere else in Scripture. Scholars guess, some would say that at the end of chapter 4, when they had that little uh, roadside circumcision incident, uh, that Moses uh, said, hey, why don't y'all head back home? Or maybe Zipporah said, you know what, I'm not sure I want to be along on this gig. Some guess that, but we don't know. Others would say it's not until later when things became heated, and Moses, out of care and concern to protect his wife and family, then later sent them back to Jethro. We don't know. All we know is that they were back in Midian at some point, and now Jethro comes to deliver the family. But make no mistake, that's not the primary reason that Jethro comes. Why is it that Jethro comes? Because the Midianite hears of the mighty works of Yahweh, (laughs) just like God had planned to do all along. 
Yahweh's mighty exodus marvels have been done to proclaim his name to all the earth. That is what he did from the beginning. That's why he planned it this way, and now it's taking place. Jethro is not an Israelite, as I've mentioned several times. We have it right there in verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian. The Midianites, by the way, were descendants of Ishmael, right? The other son, not the son of the promise that came from Abraham, but from the other lineage. But as a Midianite, Jethro may well have known of Yahweh, the one true God. It very well could have and might have been passed down through his generations. So what does it mean that he's a priest of Midian? Answer, don't entirely know. It's possible that he could be a priest in some sense, ministering to the people and leading Midianites in the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. But based upon what he's going to say in a few verses, I'm more likely to believe that he's probably either a priest of pagan gods or he's a syncretist. He's a Midian, sorry, he's a priest of, of Yahweh and all of the other gods together. And maybe he hasn't even quite worked it all out. The Midianites, by the way, were uh, a people in um, Old Testament who are not exactly buddies. And Jethro sticks out amongst the Midianites. Uh, you remember Joseph? You remember his brothers sold him into slavery? One guess who they sold him to traveling band of Midianites who took him down to Egypt and sold him there. In fact, isn't it ironic that there's a sense in which there is a cosmic justice in chapter 18? The very people who were themselves directly responsible for the nation ending up eventually in Egypt, now one of them comes back to proclaim the praise to the God of Israel after they've left the nation of Egypt. That's tidy. Thank you, Lord that you do that sometimes. The Midianites will continue as a nation to harass the nation of Israel throughout the time of Judges. That's all we need to know. Just know that Jethro is the exception. He comes from a non-Israelite people. Yahweh's plan is being fulfilled. He is a priest who knew of Yahweh by lineage. He may have served Yahweh in some sense, but likely not fully and likely didn't fully know him. But in our passage today, he hears and he learns. He's going to learn. He's going to want to know and he's going to come to know more about Yahweh. What a glorious thing when the Spirit of God is beginning to prompt a person's heart to draw them to the knowledge of him. And he can do it any way he wants. He can do it through, uh, you know, one of the grand boys on the TV if he wants. He can do it through dreams and miracles if he chooses. He can do it through a faithful friend making an offhand comment. But when God begins to speak to a person's heart and they are drawn, they say, I hear and I want to know more. Oh, that's a glorious thing if we get to be in the midst of all that. In our passage today, he will learn. He will come to a true and full understanding, it seems, of Yahweh. Jethro, the Midianite. You know what? We're not too different from Jethro. We're Midianites here. We're a room full of Midianites this morning. We, too, come from a lineage of people in Adam that is descended from one who knew the one true God and walked with him face to face. Every human being is of Adam and comes from that lineage, though maybe a little further removed. And yet, at the same time, we've strayed. And now every one of us born in Adam is born in sin, and every one of us is born 
apart from God and separated from the covenant and the promises and in desperate need of a savior, aren't we? We're a little like outsiders. We're a little like Midianites. Huh. Maybe Jethro is the first fruits of God's work in Exodus. Through the Exodus, I will proclaim my name to all of the earth. And so today, a room full of Midianites gathers, and we proclaim the name of the one who is the one true God. Have you guys ever heard of Exodus before? You ever heard of God's wonders and the marvels he did through the plagues and all those? You're like, yeah, Frank, I've been here, yeah. And, and in fact, I even heard about it before that. I've known about Exodus for a while. Yeah, I bet you have. And so you are part of the harvest that's come after Jethro, the first fruits. Next, I want you to notice a witness to God's work has been provided. Here is this man, this Midianite, who hears of Yahweh but wants to know more, so he comes to him. And God, in his sovereignty and in his provision, has already placed Moses, who will be a witness to God's work. What we see here is the life of God's servant, Moses Life, even before he comes and speaks in the passage, his life has already spoken and, by the way, has already been speaking to Jethro. Where has Jethro been these last months, Midian? With whom? Uh, Zipporah and the boys. Oh, okay. Well, let's learn a little bit more about those boys, too. Jethro, Moses' father in law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he'd sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gersham means stranger there, or it sounds very much like the words that mean stranger there. He names his oldest son stranger there because I was a stranger there. Probably Moses is speaking of how in Midian, this is so ironic, he was a stranger from his home, which was Egypt. Isn't that ironic? When he named Gershom, he probably thought of Egypt as his home. I would bet after he meets Gershom again and for the rest of his life, <laughs> that name's going to take on a new meaning, isn't it? I'm a stranger there, but I'm not estranged from Egypt. I'm estranged from my true home. And then the second name, the second boy, verse 4, the other was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Eliezer means God is my help. Um, slightly different spelling and different meaning from the name Eleazar. So this is Eliezer. So don't get those two guys confused if you meet them. God, my help. Eli, short for uh, an Elohim, El or my God. Um, Ezer. So uh, you've heard of uh, that old hymn where we sing about the Ebenezer, the Eben Etzer. That is the stone of, of um, stone of my help or the rock of help. So Etzer is the word help here. My God is help. El-E-Etzer is his name. What's the point? All those years? Jethro? Hey, Zipporah, hey, where are the boys? It's time to eat. Come on. Okay, fine. I'll get them. Hey, Gershom. Hey, Eliezer. Hey, stranger there. God is my help. Come on. It's time to eat. He would shout every day. A reminder of Moses' faith, of Moses' identity, and of Moses' God who had protected him. You think Eliezer might take on a new name after Moses has been through all he's been through and comes back and hugs that boy again? Oh, let me tell you how God has been my help, son. 
That's glorious, isn't it? You see, the point is that all along, God has providentially given Jethro a witness of his presence through Moses, just by Moses being Moses and doing Moses' stuff. I don't know. I just named the kids. That's all I did. And just by being who he was, he was a witness because the life of God's servant speaks of God. You know what? Your life as a servant of God speaks for God. Whether you try to, whether you're conscious of it, whether you intend it or not, your life as a servant speaks for him. You, you and I can't help but speak of him. How do we speak? Oh, Lord, help me. Help my life to be one where I speak freely and I'm conscious of you regularly. And I promote not myself, but you, oh, Lord, speak through me and speak in spite of me. Maybe my life is a great example of how you rescue sinners and people who aren't that great, but you glorify your name by providing for them, Lord. At work, you speak. At school, you speak. When you visit the store, you speak. All week long, you speak in your home, in your car, online, everywhere you go, you speak. And God had has meant to provide you and to provide me as a witness to his work. Brothers and sisters, I forget that sometimes. My guess is you might too. God had supernaturally intended to use Moses in Jethro's life, and even when Moses wasn't around, and so in the same way for us. You may even let this be fuel and encouragement to you as you think about, I don't know, gathering with family, or there may be more peculiar opportunities before you today or this week to just pray, Lord, let me just be used by you, however I might. Oh, Lord God, let me walk in your grace. Let me walk in humility. Let me walk in your joyful truth because I hear lies all day long and I need to be reminded of your truth. Let me walk in it so that I'm a witness to your work. And as one of his children, he has worked in you. You have a testimony. We haven't even gotten to Moses' testimony yet, but your life is a testimony to the Lord. How do you let your life speak? How do you take opportunities? The Lord was uh, challenging me um, recently, and he could probably challenge me, you know, every week, uh, and I would need it uh, as a continual reminder. But the Lord was challenging me not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, peculiarly, and I was praying specifically along these lines. And so by the grace of God, um, he helped. And uh, I, I didn't do something wonderful and huge, you know, pat, my ba- pat myself on the back for nothing gigantic, but I rejoiced in God's faithfulness. I just find when I'm conscious and I pray and I ask that he is so good to answer, right? Uh, I was on the sidelines of a soccer game, and uh, somebody had made a comment completely related to religious things, God things, spiritual things, and I had a thought, and it was a God thought. And then as soon as I had that thought, I had another thought, and I thought, I'm not sure if these people want to know my thought that I was thinking. And I thought, I kind of think this is what I've been praying for. And so I shared my thought, and the conversation went quiet really fast. (laughs) It was wonderful. I'm totally serious, because I honestly don't think I was offensive. I honestly made a comment by the grace of God that it was like, oh, yeah. And I don't know how they finished that sentence in their mind. Oh, you're one of those Christians. Oh, yeah, you're a pastor. You get paid to say this stuff all week long, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know what it was. 
my hope and my prayer was, Lord, would you help me be conscious of your presence all day long today? Would you help me in my speech to help others be conscious of your presence in the situation wherever I am all day long? And God answered. And, and they were conscious. They might not have liked it. Um, and, and boy, I have, I have so much to learn and, and to do better. Had I done it much better, I would have a super victorious story about how they were like, wow, Frank, that's good. Tell me more. That's not what happened. It was just a little reminder. It was just a little, you know what, man, God is good. That's all it was. Just very simple. Just raising the flag. See who's going to salute. As I look back, I had to say, honestly, it was probably my favorite moment of the whole weekend a couple weeks ago. As tiny as it was, probably long forgotten by those who were present, unless God chooses otherwise. We find in our passage a witness to God's work that he has provided. May the Lord make me a witness to his work that he has provided in somebody's life this week. May God make you, brother and sister, a witness to his work that he has provided you for the purpose, for the sake of somebody else. Amen? Third, notice. Notice the message gets delivered. The message gets delivered. And the salvation of Yahweh is proclaimed. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. By the way, Moses is reunited with his wife and children. It is, it is barely a side note in this passage. I'm not to say that it's not important. It just wasn't important for continuing revelation for us to know about. I, I imagine that that was a wonderful reuniting. But it moves on quickly to what the Lord would have us know. Verse 6, Jethro sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Probably sent word ahead so that he could be appropriately received uh, and, and, and in the best way, so that Moses wouldn't be embarrassed. And also so Moses could make whatever preparations to receive him. Verse 7, then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. And he bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. They, they did the things that good, ancient, Near Eastern, common custom would do, courtesy would do, the kissing of one another's cheek, the embrace, probably Moses in approach, bowing low, because this is the priest of Midian, and this is his wife's father, this is his elder, and the elder of his family. And so the great Moses comes in humility, bowing down, acknowledging all of these things. Isn't that cool that it didn't all just go to his head, all the stuff that he'd done? Dude, you're coming? Great. I'll just show up, and I'll have somebody come out back and, you know, grab you when you get here, right? Dude, did I mention, by the way, the stuff I've done with this stick? I've done some really cool things. You can't wait to talk to me. No. He goes out, and he bows as he should. And he greets and he honors. And I can't imagine the excitement and the, as they speak to one another in verse 7. But here it is. Here's the proclamation of Yahweh's salvation. Yahweh's physical deliverance, which parallels the gospel. Yahweh's spiritual deliverance through Christ. Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Pause there. I want you to notice there's three parts of uh, 
of Moses' gospel. All right, here's the gospel in Exodus. By the way, these same three elements are mentioned multiple times. This is already the second time. It's there in verse 1, most of it. It's almost all there in verse 8, and it's going to happen again at least once. It actually happens a couple more layers of times in the remaining verses, so that's why I grab on them here. Here is what the author is telling us. There is a message there on, about judgment. There's a message about judgment. It's the judgment on the sin that was perpetrated against Israel in this case. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. How they had oppressed them and put them to hard labor. And every one of the Egyptians' so-called gods was judged, right? You know that full well. That the plagues were a mockery of the Egyptian gods. Oh, yeah, you got a god who's in charge of gnats? <laughs> Watch this. Oh, the Nile. You worship the Nile because it gives you life. It's the mother of all life in your land. Oh, yeah, watch this. Egyptian crops, Egyptian animals, Egyptian land, the Egyptians' health, the Egyptian source of life was all struck judgment. Why? Because they had enslaved my firstborn, Yahweh says. And so I will strike your firstborn. The final plague. Judgment. Moses relays all the story. Second, notice the hardship. And the key here about the hardship is the hardship is not because of the sin that comes upon them, but the sin of their own hearts and souls. Isn't it so cool that Moses gives the whole story? Hey, man, let me tell you how God judged those guys who were so cruel to us. And by the way, let me tell you about what we brought on ourselves. Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey. You remember a bit of that hardship, that grumbling? Oh, yeah, and then there was the grumbling, and then after that, there was the grumbling. And then after that, there was the grumbling, quarreling, and testing. That's the story of the short journey over a couple months, period. That makes this gospel presentation. Why? Because we don't proclaim ourselves. We, we proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord. We proclaim not our righteousness, but his. That's what we just celebrated. And then lastly, the deliverance, deliverance of Yahweh. All the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. The word deliver, delivered, deliverance, deliverer, key word throughout this passage we find many times. Through great marvels, Yahweh delivered them and through even greater mercy. Yeah, the marvels we talked about, right? Gnats and rivers. But here within the story, as he talks about their hardships, are also the recitation is also the recitation of the mercies, right? What has he done just in the last couple of months after they got on this side of the Reed Sea? Oh, there was that purified water miracle after they had complained against Yahweh. Oh, yeah, and then there was the quail. Dude, we had duck all orange in the middle of the desert after we complained. And every morning we wake up and there's magic food on the ground called manna after we complained. And that's not even to mention the blood of the Passover lamb that was spilled so that their households would not be struck. That's not to mention the rock that was stricken so that it it being stricken by the wrath of God could pour forth life in water for all of the nation, just like Christ. 
stricken for us. The message gets delivered, right? There's the gospel in Exodus, right? There's Moses' gospel to Jethro, his Midianite father-in-law. Next, notice the message is embraced. It's not just shared, but it's embraced. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. The message is embraced. This outsider receives and rejoices and praises. And now, he says, by his own lips, now I know. That's the best insight we have into where Jethro was before. I don't know if he was a total pagan. He might have just been a total syncretist. But at the end of the day, I don't think he had true saving knowledge. But I think maybe now, maybe now he does. Remember what God said he would do through Exodus? The Egyptians and Pharaoh, they'll know. Israelites, you, you'll know. Nations, the world, my name will be known. So what's happened since chapter 9? Well, the Egyptians know, at least to some degree. At one point, they hear about a plague that's coming, and they're like, dude, we should go get, um, we should go get your, your oxen out of the field. Because they're like, I, I think I know something. When this guy speaks, stuff happens. In fact, at one point, the people come and, and they plead with Pharaoh, those from his court. They're like, dude, get rid of this guy and get rid of these people. Because at some level, they know whatever he is, he's greater than our gods. How about Pharaoh himself? On a couple of times, he actually says the magic words, right? Moses, would you pray for me? Because I have sinned. Ah, granted, Pharaoh will later repent of his repentance. He doesn't stick to those words. But does he know at some level, at some very surface level, he knows he's messing with somebody much bigger than him? How about the Israelites? The end of chapter 14 records, right after they crossed through the Reed Sea, it records, and the Israelites saw all the bodies on the seashore. And they feared the Lord God, and they believed in Yahweh and his servant Moses. And then what happens next in chapter 15? They sing. Just like God planned all along. Now, how about Jethro? Verse 9, he rejoices. Jethro rejoiced. What about the ends of the earth? Jethro is just the first fruits. He's just the first little guy outside of Egypt and Israel who comes and says, and God's keeping that part of his plan too. He comes and he rejoices when he hears. And he stands in awe. And then what does he do? Verse 10, he blesses God. Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. And then finally, the climax of the whole passage and the main point of the whole scene is 11. Now I know. I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. And he's using the word Yahweh there. He's not just using the generic word for God. He doesn't even just say the God or your God. He says Yahweh, the covenant God. When a man or a woman has his eyes opened to the reality of God in the universe, he now knows that God is real. 
and he knows that God is over all. Now, the outworking of that position of a mighty, saving, gracious, glorious God is going to have a very rocky roller coaster ride for any brand new believer. But oh, there is a moment when our eyes are opened, right? And we go, are you kidding me? This blows all my categories. And this, this is God. I have seen God. The message here is embraced. Brothers and sisters, there's there's probably no other privilege on the face of the earth that we could know as glorious as being a tiny little part of doing that for somebody, right? As scary as it is, the thought of the rejection that may come in opening our mouth and witnessing to God's works, it's dwarfed, that fear. It's dwarfed by the glory of seeing somebody embrace, right? That's why we do it. That's why we speak. You can hate me, and you can hate me, and you can hate me, and they can hate me, and she can hate me, and everybody's hated me, but finally, somebody's eyes were opened, and it's so totally worth it. Oh, gracious Lord, our God, make us a people who long for, who pray for such opportunities that we would be the one provided ahead of time by you to just speak that message of your good works in our lives. The message is embraced. Finally, the passage closes. And it's really where we began, except now we've seen it in full. Yahweh's final purpose is being realized. Yahweh's final purpose is being realized. His goal is not just that his name be proclaimed in all the nations, but that it be embraced. And the end result of a full embrace is what? It's worship. It's wholehearted, willing worship. Verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. I don't think Jethro offered the sacrifices, even though he was the priest of Midian. I think Aaron is named there because Aaron offers the sacrifices. All the more so would I be convinced of that if this happens after chapter 19, after Moses has gotten, gone up the mountain, and Aaron is proclaimed the high priest. What you should see, regardless of how you read it, is that you have right worship with Aaron and the leaders of the nation that takes place. Understand that every human being on the face of the earth worships, right? Uh, Ted Tripp is, is uh, the place I think I first heard that so clearly. Every human is a worshiper. The only question is, what are we going to worship? Every secularist, every atheist, every agnostic, every human being is a worshiper. It's just a matter of what we worship. And sometimes in our misguided efforts, we may try to offer worship to God or what we think of as God, and yet that worship may not be acceptable. Understand, just having the right heart isn't necessarily enough. I think it's the right starting point, and I think God is able to reveal to us what we need to know if we're genuinely searching. But here what we have is actual right worship, right? The focus in this entire little section on Jethro has been on what? That he's a priest? No, that's mentioned. You would think that would be one of the most important things about him. It barely gets a mention. You know what the main focus is? It's that he's not an Israelite. We know he's a Midianite, but he's given, been given a particular title in this passage 13 times. 13 times. There's only 12 verses, people. 
Like if you're looking for repetition in order to try and find emphasis in a passage, the first part of Exodus 18 is screaming at you. What is that title? Father-in-law. Why? Because what's the point? Jethro is the priest of Midian, but that means nothing. It's his connection to Moses. That's his only hope. He's Moses' father-in-law. And through Moses, he's going to get the message. And he's going to become real family. He's an elder. He's a priest. He's a father. But what makes all the difference is that now and forevermore, he won't just be connected to Moses. He'll be connected to Yahweh. And that is all that matters. Your title, your position, as you've already heard this morning, my place, my position, my whatever, in my family, in society, means nothing eternally. But connection to Yahweh, that means everything. What we have here is a Midianite this morning who comes to get connected to the God of Israel. What we have here then in verse 12 is Jethro there together with the leaders of Israel gathered in worship, a people from different peoples, right? What does that sound like to you? Groups of people from different backgrounds worshiping together. Oh, I don't know, maybe Revelation 5. This is just a tiny little glimpse. It's the first fruits. Not the first fruits of all of Scripture, but, but I think arguably and rightly so, the first fruits of God's purpose for the way he did the Exodus. He's going to be at least the first that's recorded, the first that's shown, the first that's given to us of a non-Israelite coming and worshiping together with the Israelite people. And you know what? We're all Midianites. <laughs> Jethro's the first fruits of me and you, at least if you'd ever heard of Exodus before, and I think you have. If you've ever given God glory and praise before because of what he's done in Exodus, and I think you have. And now we worship together with all those who are truly his. And Revelation 5 says that they will come from every tongue and tribe and nation and people, and they will give glory to who? What's he called? Revelation 5. The Lamb. Where'd they get that title? Exodus. Jethro was our forefather in the faith, the Midianite who went before us Midianites. Brothers and sisters, let us be like Moses. Let our lives speak of the good works of God. You have been providentially provided in somebody's life to speak of the grace of Christ. May the Lord use you. May the Lord use me this week. Let's stand and let's rejoice in this great God together. Let's pray. Oh, great Lord, our God, we rejoice that though we are Midianites and were once Midianites born in Adam, we knew of you, but also children of Adam, we strayed. We stray like sheep we stray and go after our own way. And yet you have called us from the ends of the earth to rejoice in the deliverer of Israel, the God of the Exodus, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. We do praise you today for what you have done in Exodus, and yet still such miracles you are doing in hearts and lives of those who come to know you today. Lord, this week, let us rejoice that we are yours. Thank you for Jethro. Thank you for opening his eyes. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege you give for us to speak of you. Would you, would you, Lord, this week, Give us an opportunity just to raise the flag, maybe to even share the full gospel, but to speak of Christ 
Lord, if, if, if that would happen, then let it be for your glory. We will give you all the praise, and ahead of time, we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.